All right, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 can be found on page 981 in the Pew Bible. 981. We'll be focusing on Philippians 3, 4 through 9, but I'll be reading 3, 2 through 9 for the context. Philippians 3, starting in verse 2. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would turn our hearts and minds to Jesus, that we would see him as the great treasure that he is, that we would see the value of knowing him in our lives. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever met a child, or maybe it was you, that you saw something of so much value that you were willing to overpay for it? You were willing to give up the things that were profitable to have it. For me as a child, it was baseball cards or an autograph. For adults, it might be a house, might be a car, might be a field, or jewelry, or even a vacation. You, you've counted the cost, and you've said, yes, that's worth having. This is a common experience in our day, and not only in our day, but in the days of the scriptures, in the days of Jesus as he told two parables that communicated the value of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus declared in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. When you see the treasure and the great value of it, you're willing to count the cost and lose everything to gain it. And even after having this treasure, you continue to believe it was worth the cost. In our text this morning... Paul is going to share his personal testimony of what was once valuable to him, 
but how he considered and even considers now it as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And this personal testimony of Paul is, is written not only as a description of his experience, but it's intended to be our experience as well. Paul will say in Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me. So in this testimony, we have Paul's example that we are to imitate. And as Paul lays out his personal testimony, he's unpacking phrases in, from verse 3. And I, that's why I read the whole context here. He's unpacking these phrases of the glory in Christ Jesus and putting no confidence in the flesh. Verses 4 through 6 describe his confidence in the flesh. And then 7, ultimately through 11, which we'll be looking at 10 and 11 next week. Verses 7 through 11 describe what it looks like to glory in Christ Jesus. So first, we're introduced to Paul's former confidence, inherited privileges, and personal achievements. So look with me at verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. We recognize in this context that Paul has warned the church against false teaching. He called the church in Philippi to reject the counterfeit Christians who were putting their confidence in their flesh. Last week we saw that these false teachers were requiring circumcision in order to be right with God. They taught that the way to be accepted by God was through the door of Judaism. And then you tack on Jesus. But Paul reminded the church that we are the true people of God who worship by the Spirit, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So, so Paul decides to unpack these phrases to encourage us not to put our confidence in our flesh, but to glory in Christ alone. So Paul gives his personal testimony. He describes his former confidence in the flesh. It's likely that he does this for a couple of reasons. He wants to warn the church against false teaching. And he wants to remind them that boasting in one's own achievements as the basis for a saving relationship with God will not stand. You have no grounds to stand on. The false teachers might have said, well, Paul, the reason you don't want them to accept these rituals or circumcision and only want them to trust in Jesus is because you can't do these things. You don't have these things. Or you're just jealous. It was common in that day, in an honor and shame society, for the men to compete with one another. They would see who could ascend to the most prestigious position. The goal was to gain more honors and recognition. Very similar in our day, especially we see this in, in sports with the media. Comparisons are made between athletes on who's better, 
Who's the greatest? And so they put their stats side by side with one another. The more accolades you have, the better you are, and the more honor you receive. And so Paul, in a similar way, he, he joins in the game. He joins in, to which he says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he lists seven distinctives. The first four are in his inherited privileges, and the last three focus on his personal achievements. As we dive into these, we'll we'll begin to see how practical they are for us. Number one, verse five, circumcised on the eighth day. This sets him apart from pagans and from the Gentile converts who would be circumcised later in life. His circumcision was performed as as prescribed to Abraham back in Genesis 17, 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Paul had the right ritual. Number two, of the people of Israel. The Jews would at that time boast in their ancestry. You recall in Matthew 3, when John was out baptizing in the wilderness, the people of Israel would claim Abraham as their father, as though that was the way in which they were protected from God's wrath. They thought they were safe because they have Abraham as their father. Paul was an Israelite by birth. He was of the right race. Number three, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is of the right family. Benjamin, you know, is one of the sons born to Rachel. and In fact, she died in giving birth to him. The tribe of Benjamin... Benjamin means the son of my right hand. The tribe of Benjamin remained faithful along with Judah when the northern tribes went their own way prior to the exile. The first king of Israel, King Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. It's probable that's where Paul, and originally Saul, received his name. Number four, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was a true Jew. He was a a Hebrew of Hebrews. In describing it this way, he may be distinguishing himself from the Jews that spoke Greek. They're referred to as the Hellenists in Acts 6, who adopted some of the, the customs in that day. And the point here is that Paul's family did not forsake their Hebrew heritage. They remain devoted to the customs and distinctives of their ethnicity. So these are Paul's inherited privileges. And if anyone had reason to put confidence in their past pedigree, it was Paul. And it still did not make him right with God. Therefore, no one can attain a right standing with God on the basis of one's upbringing. So, Practical implications for us. Don't put your hope and confidence in who your parents are or what they've done for you or their devotion. 
or because you came from the right family or the right race or the right ethnicity. People can be tempted to think that, well, my, my parents are Christians, so I'm good with God. Or they were faithful, so I'm good with God. They, they took me to church when I was a kid, so I must be right with God. Our inherited privileges will not make us right with God. Not only that, but Paul now shifts to his personal achievements, his moral accomplishments. There are three of them. First, the end of verse 5, as to the law of Pharisee. So now Paul unpacks his religious lifestyle. The Pharisees were considered as those who were most faithful to the Scripture. They held to the highest standard of morality. They were the respected group in that day. There were about 6,000 of them, and they separated themselves and distanced themselves from others. In Acts 26.5, Paul says that the Pharisees were the strictest party of our religion. In Acts 22.3, Paul was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictest manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. And that, that's what we see here. Paul says in verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As Paul described his story in Acts 22, he continued, I persecuted the way, Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And this happened back in chapter 7 and 8 of Acts prior to his conversion. He stands by and watches the stoning of C Stephen and he approves of his execution. And he ravaged the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Paul, when he was known as Saul, thought he was honoring God in persecuting the church. He thought he was doing what was right and good. He was zealous. And I think what's fascinating here is that no matter how sincere or zealous a person might be, if it is not rooted in the truth of God's word, it does them no good. Paul says in Romans 10, 1 through 3, that his heart's desire and prayer to God is for his Israelites, his fellow Israelites, to be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And that was Paul at one time. He was sincere. He was zealous in his persecution of the church. In his last human achievement as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This doesn't mean that he was sinless or perfect. That's not how the word blameless was used or understood. Rather, it would refer to a careful observance of the law and to the law that even when one sinned, they would do the right course of action that was required of them in the law. Paul was moral, 
Paul was upright. His life would have been worth emulating. Externally, he did what the law required. For those who thought they were religious, Paul was better. And so Paul could say, do not put your confidence in your human achievements because they don't make us right with God. So here's what we can learn from this. Our occupation, our zeal, our morality, our reputation, our uprightness does not and will not make us right with God. Do not give in to the temptation that says we are accepted by God on the basis of what we do. Christians put no confidence in the flesh. And we, we sang about this. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Our boast is in Christ and in Christ alone. And that's what we see in our second points. Paul will describe now what it means to glory or to boast in Christ. So second, Paul's transformation, a reorientation of his life because of Christ. So notice, notice verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. As Paul continues his testimony, he uses accounting terminology with the idea of debits and credits. He has the loss column and then he has a gain column. The whatever gain I had, so whatever gain I had, those things that were his privileges, his accomplishments as an, as an Israelite, as a Pharisee, as blameless under the law, those were gain. Those things at one time in which he put his confidence in. But now, those things that were of value, those things that were credited to him, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That which was on the gain side is now moved over to the loss side. When Paul met Christ that day on the road to Damascus, his life changed. So when Christ meets him, his life is changed. He was converted to Christ. His life was transformed. What once was gain was now considered loss because of Jesus. His rituals, his race, his family, his religion, his occupation, his zeal, his morality, all of it loss because of one person, Jesus Christ. Everything is transferred from a credit side to a debit because of Jesus. Knowing Jesus moves all his privileges and accomplishments from a profit to a loss. And Jesus becomes his one and only gain. On that day, when he met Jesus, he counted 
he considered. He had come to regard that what his profit, his advantage, was actually harmful. It was a liability. Imagine this. Imagine depositing money into the bank and you think you're building up your assets. Imagine all the amount that you thought would be credited to your account is actually withdrawn from your account. You see? It's not a gain. It's a loss. So it's not simply that you begin to view your privileges or achievements as indifferent or unimportant, but actually it becomes a disadvantage because it's keeping you from Jesus. And that's what it would have been for those who seek to gain a right standing with God on the basis of what they do and what they did. Sometimes it seems more challenging to lead a good, moral, righteous person to the Lord because they think that they're doing just fine on their own and they don't need Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes the hardest ones to reach are the ones who have been in church every Sunday and never committed their life to Christ. Because they think they're okay. They go to church. And there's no transformation. When Paul encountered the living Christ, his entire viewpoint on life changed. His focus, his direction of what, was, what he saw as significant and valuable changed. Has that happened for you? When we came to know Jesus personally as our Lord and Savior, we received the forgiveness of sins and a new heart. All because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We looked outside of ourselves for salvation we placed our hope and confidence in Christ and not in our achievements. And by God's grace, it transformed our viewpoint on life. It transformed what we value. And notice here, Paul says, it's not just something that happened in the past where his value changed in the past. But now, it's what he still considers. The evaluation that Paul made in the past is reinforced in the present. The one who knows Christ, their past is not only transformed the way they view it, but their present reality and perspective on life changes as well. Paul moves from the past tense to a present tense in verse 8, and he expands on it. Did you, did you catch it? In verse 8, 
It's so expansive here. Indeed, I count, no longer I counted, I count everything, everything, not just my achievements and heritage. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul basically says, it was a good decision. I don't have any regrets on what happened in the past of counting it as loss. Even now, I don't regret it. He continues to regard his achievements, his privileges, in fact, all things as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Everything is presently lost to him. Not just because of the value of Christ, but because of the value of knowing Christ. The value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The personal relationship with Jesus surpasses the value of everything. Have you discovered his worth in your life? Have you discovered the value of a relationship with him? Experiencing Jesus and being in a close, intimate relationship with him supersedes everything in the life of Paul, and it should in our lives as well. Paul counts everything. Not just the list from his Jewish background or accomplishments, but anything that we might place our faith, our confidence in apart from Christ. Right? Anything that we put our confidence in apart from Christ is loss. Any religious observance or reputation or success, if it keeps me from trusting in Christ alone as the basis for being acceptable to God, it's loss to me. And Paul continues. He keeps expanding on this. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. When he came to Christ, it resulted in suffering the loss of all things. It was costly for Paul. He lost his privileges in his religion. He lost the security of his home, his status. Do you know what he got? Imprisonment. Countless beatings. Five times the 39 lashes. Three times beaten with a rod. Stoned, shipwreck, sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, without food and cold and exposure. So Paul, would you trade it? No. No. Do you know what he has? Jesus, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. He gains Jesus. So in light of the reality of knowing Christ and gaining him, he counts all his moral achievements and accomplishments and anything that would attempt him to earn God's favor. He considers it rubbish as dung, as garbage or trash, as filthy. 
as that which is suitable for the dogs to feed upon. Not only does he view his achievements and morality and accomplishments as lost, but now as rubbish, which means they were disgusting to him because they kept him from Christ. It's all rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So the question for us again is this. Is Jesus your highest priority? Is Jesus Christ and knowing him what you value? This is our mission here at Pleasant Ridge. To know Christ and to make him known. What is evident in the life of a Christian is one who sees the surpassing value of Jesus and is willing to trade everything all the treasures, all their rewards to know Jesus and then know him more. That's how we glory in Christ. We pursue a deeper relationship with him. And as a church, our relationship with Christ grows deeper as we seek to know him in his word, as we pray to him, as we sing songs together that glorify him, and as we fellowship with one another. Knowing Jesus transforms not just what we do here on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. So might we continue to know him and treasure him above all else, and might we continue to glory in Christ. And third and finally, Paul's aim is to gain Christ and be found in him. So notice the last part of verse 8 and then verse 9. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul now provides two purposes. And then the third one next week in verses 10 and 11 for why he counts all things as rubbish. His goal and aim in life is to gain Christ and be found in him. When you know the value of something, what you want is to gain it. Very much like the parable of the pearl of great value. So also when we know the surpassing value of Jesus and being in a relationship with him, what you want is to gain him. Now, now what does that mean? What does it mean to gain Jesus? Paul had counted his former gain as losses because of Jesus, and now he considers everything as loss in order to gain Jesus. And we've seen in this letter already in Philippians 1.21, Paul said that to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is dying gain? Because it means being with Christ and that is far better. To gain Christ for Paul involved being with Christ. 
And here it involves being found in him. To be found in something carries with it the idea of trust or safety, taking refuge for safety. So also here it involves being hidden with Christ, union with Christ, so that when Christ appears, you also will appear with him in glory. For Paul, union with Christ, being found in Jesus Christ, is his concern, it's his aim, and it is his goal. Paul had come to realize that even in his external conformity to the law, it still was not sufficient to make him right with God. Only Christ's perfect righteousness in his obedience to the point of his sacrificial death for us on the cross. Credited to our account, received by faith in Jesus, can serve as the basis and grounds for being declared right with God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. So Paul abandons his own effort and places his trust and faith in Christ alone. So how do we gain Christ? Through union with him, which comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And when you place your faith in Jesus, who is the greatest treasure, then you'll want to gain him. It's not about gaining morality or righteousness Or a life without suffering? Or a better and easier life now? Or a place free from sin? Have you thought about that? It's about gaining Christ. When that's what we're about as a people and as a church then we are glorying in Christ and putting no confidence in the flesh. So as we close, abandon every attempt and effort to be right with God on the basis of who your parents are, on the basis of what you do. Instead, Depend upon Christ. Trust in him alone for salvation. When we experience the surpassing value of knowing Christ, our lives will be transformed. And we will treasure him when we continually remind ourselves of what God has done for us in Christ. So this week... Intentionally focus your heart and your mind upon what Jesus has done for you on the cross. In fact, not just this week, all the time. What we seek to do, even when we wake up in the morning, every morning, 
is remind ourselves of the gospel. Remind ourselves of what God has done for us in Christ and his death and his resurrection. And by God's grace, might it lead us to know the surpassing worth of Christ so that what was true of Paul might be our testimony as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we recognize that as Christians, we put no confidence in the flesh. Our boast, our glory is in Christ and in Christ alone. We praise you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, to take our place, so that we can be right with you by trusting in Him and Him alone. We give you thanks for that this morning. As we're reminded of the cross, we recognize the value that it has the value of Christ and in knowing him personally. And I pray that we would consider his work on the cross even this week, even today, that it would lead us to see his greatness and worth in our lives and that we would continue to want to know him more and more and point others to him. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.